Hello everybody and welcome to the 158th edition of the Frank and Stan chat. And those of you watching on the video, you'll see that we have a guest, uh, Nayad Sechik. Chehich. Chehich. So yeah, I, I knew one. I was going to struggle with it. Uh, I actually <laughs> said to Nayad beforehand, I said, it's really embarrassing when we have a guest and I can't quite get the name right, but it was building up in me. I could feel the tension as it was coming, you know, so. Uh, it's I, I, it's I, my I, fault. I distracted you with my shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I love guests like this that actually apologise for the errors I make. I once did an entire assembly where I'd forgotten the guest's name in front of 200 children. You try and, as your brain's going... <laughs> it's all right. I don't, I don't judge you. It's not like you used to do a job where you had to remember lots of names or anything. Yeah. <laughs> I used to just... I went through it all saying, and our, our very prodigious guest is... <laughs> <laughs> couldn't remember yeah, uh, I've already I mean some of these chats we have a, well all of the chats are a little prep chat beforehand but actually you know this is going to be a bit of an interesting chat I just feel it coming now <laughs> um, anyway uh, Naya who are you what do you do why are you here you know why are you a Newcastle United supporter oh that's a good question um, so let's go through let's break all that down so I'm a recovering teacher um, and the founder of Vibble, um, which is a product which I founded back in 2019 with my wife, who is um, still a teacher uh, in a primary school setting. And we were on a mission to reduce teacher workloads. So we both felt that the workload within the teaching profession is just unsustainable. It's incredibly difficult to manage, particularly once you have a family. And uh, we wanted to reduce that somehow. And we developed a tool to reduce teacher workload from marking called Vibble and using it, teachers can snap student work, record verbal feedback, and then securely send it to their students. And obviously you can speak seven times faster than you can write. So it's a much quicker process for giving feedback, but new research has shown that verbal feedback is also more effective. So that the EEF has done a, uh, has a teaching and learning toolkit and they show that on average verbal feedback adds an additional two months of learning in comparison to, to written marking. So it's a faster way of giving feedback. It's a better way, I would I would hope, for most people. Um, and we've had loads of traction since we, since we launched. Yeah, so we, we launched in February, and we now in 75 schools um, in 18 countries around the world. And we've got a really good pipeline of schools and colleges and universities and businesses who are interested to, to kind of keep working with us. How did you get to the reach then of these? I mean, I would have thought it would have been local schools, probably your wife's school and one or two other schools that they could lean on. So how, how did you get that reach? Yeah, so I think this it's twofold. So firstly, what we're trying to solve is a hair on fire problem for, for head teachers and for teachers. You know, teacher workload is one of the biggest issues for them. So um, that's the first thing. So the, the value proposition was attractive. Um, for head teachers and for teachers and then the second thing is we got early um, investment and support from evidence-based education who are quite well known and respected around the world so every time we've put stuff out there they've amplified it and and just retweeted it so most of the interest that we've had has just been off a few tweets I mean you're welcome to look through our, our social media channels so you can see our marketing is pretty rubbish um, it's mainly been just the odd thing here and there yeah. that's that's brought a lot of people in, in into us. Um, the other thing is when we first launched, we also launched as a freemium product. 
so we we had the product available for free so a lot of people were interested in trying it out for wow. for that reason as well right. as a go to market strategy um we have actually changed our the way we're doing things so the, when we first launched we had like a very limited version of the product that was free we found that it was problematic with what we were trying to achieve so, so now probably want you want to hit people with the whole thing don't you you want to be yeah. able to sort of sell or promote the the full package so you can see exactly where it's going to buy it. Yeah. So we, we were kind of like, our mission is to enable better, faster, more collaborative feedback. And that better feedback area is really important. And we just had a hard look at ourselves and we we're thinking if we're like one of the, one of the examples here is on our limited version, you couldn't, students couldn't respond to feedback, but um, we know from research and evidence that that improves the quality of feedback. And we had that as a premium option, but just the whole idea of like, having a, a more rubbish version that then you upsell to that that better version i don't know it just didn't feel um didn't feel quite right with what we were trying to do so um and also with the product we set up classes and schools and that tends to work much better when the senior leader is on board yeah um so we've had more success i would say in terms of um getting that buy in at the top and then rolling it out uh, across schools or or colleges that way so is it the... is that primary and secondary? So we've had interest from both primary and secondary. Um, the majority of the interest comes from secondary for a number of reasons, I would say. Um, but there's not no reason to say that we couldn't use Vibble with primary schools as well. I suspect it would be not very useful for key stage one, but for key stage two, certainly upper key stage two, it would be quite useful. And when you look at the research and evidence around teacher marking, primary teachers have it the worst because they have to mark every day because mm. the students are seeing the same books every day. I used to teach secondary English. So, you know, I could teach a class and not see them again for a whole week. So mm. I could delay that that feedback process by a week or two weeks. But for a primary teacher, they're constantly on that treadmill all the time. Um, so I think Bibble has the potential to alleviate that workload for primary teachers significantly. But um, most of the interest has come from secondaries, mainly because secondaries have more resources in terms of technology. Um, there's also less concern about children's data and how it's used um, and all of those kinds of things that, that people consider when they're making an EdTech purchase. So if they wanted to, if, if somebody wanted to get involved in this, I mean, what sort of resources would, apart from the fact how much it would cost, but what, what sort of infrastructure would you need in order to make this work? So when the feedback is sent, the student would need a device to access that feedback. So typically, if you're if students already have their own devices at home, they can access feedback on right. that's great. If not, computer rooms where they can access feedback in a the school, they can access feedback on a phone, on a tablet or a, on a right. computer, right. any device. So this is one of the concerns with some primary schools, because obviously some primary schools only have like a, a trolley with a few yeah. computers on. Or a computer on. room or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's easier if there's some kind of um, computing infrastructure in place and because of lockdown I think a lot more schools have more of that infrastructure in place because there are a lot of donations for disadvantaged schools and disadvantaged students of, of computer devices that were sent out and laptops during the pandemic but it's not 100% and also um, obviously um, schools are in a in a tight funding position at the moment yeah, so yeah. having to buy new equipment is is tricky for them yeah that was the point I was going down really because um 
I'm I'm heavily involved in trying to develop uh, digital um, education in Blackpool, and uh, I went to a primary school uh, earlier this week. Where there's great enthusiasm that they've they've basically been um, uh, we've we've managed to get Blackpool schools onto the sort of connecting the classroom project and to be first in the queue. So they've all got super fast connectivity into their school, and they're sort of got a Wi-Fi system that's really sort of really very strong now they haven't got the devices they haven't got the expertise you know so it even feels slightly even more frustrating now because actually the the problems they're facing are are, some of those are financial because there is they've got some the school i went to they have got a couple of teachers that are really on it so in a way the question for me with you is you know is it possible to do that say with a year six group it doesn't have to be a whole school and does the cost actually reduce because you're just doing it with a couple of classes or do you have to buy the whole package you know regardless of whether or not you're involving two classes or 15 yeah so we price per student per year and we Uh, can do packages that are bespoke for for individual groups so to give you an example i was literally speaking to the head of a multi-academy trust of over 30 schools um the other day and they're going to do a pilot with us um in a few schools and they was they were telling me you know the funding situation has has never been as challenging as it is right now there's a whole number of reasons obviously electricity and gas has got a lot more expensive and that's affecting schools because they're big premises and they have to heat and run them food prices have gone up which is obviously affecting the the catering side of the school the schools but also um uh less children are being born so there's less funding coming in that way. Yes. And because of the austerity over so many years, the funding hasn't increased over time. And then obviously from COVID. And so it's just been a bit of a perfect storm. So it's a real challenge for schools. And I understand that. And from from my perspective, when a school comes to us and they're interested in getting involved, you know, my main priority is just making sure that they get value from it. And that they have a good experience with the pilot. And if we can do a smaller pilot where it's just a, a subject group or a couple of classes, then that's absolutely fine. The important thing is that teachers are using it and they're enjoying the experience because mm. I know that the funding situation is not always going to be the way that it is now. Hopefully, if a new government, when a new government um, comes into power <laughs> next yeah. year, then, you know, all the best businesses are born out recessions. So, my my main um my main goal is for teachers and head teachers to have, have a good experience with it and if funding is an issue um we'll just find a solution to make sure right. that they can get right. it to work so how how would the, you know if somebody's watching this and, and they're interested how do they get in touch with you so they can go on our website which is um quite tricky to spell just uh, just following the theme for my name um so it's vibbl.co.uk vibble um, it hasn't got the E on the end, which can catch people out right. basically because we couldn't afford it when we first launched. Uh, and now it just looks like a trendy brand. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, vibbl.co.uk. If you go on there and then there's a form, you can fill it out and then I can I can do a demo with you and show you how it all works. But the important thing that we're doing, it's not just about speeding up feedback. We also provide um, data and evidence for head teachers on the impact of feedback because as Dylan Williams says, feedback is only useful if you're doing something with it, if it's being acted yeah, on. Yeah. And too often, data on feedback is very limited. So there's either marking scrutinies, which are very um, 
you know take a lot of time for senior leaders to go through all the books and to get it and also you're forcing teachers to then mark which is obviously a a problem for teacher workload or there's verbal feedback in the classroom where head teachers are asking uh teachers to write vf in books but all you're really proving is whether or not that feedback's been given you know there's no information or data on the impact of that so um we think we're kind of like an aristotelian middle pathway between these two um different philosophies and strategies and hopefully we can deliver kind of faster feedback but also that that kind of broader picture of how feedback's been used across a school or a group of schools fabulous okay well brilliant um uh yeah i'll be following it up because <laughs> oh, a couple of schools already that will be interested in this so um anyway stan let's move on to what's caught our eye this week what's caught your eye um an education secretary who thinks head teachers should drive around and pick up absent pupils on a daily basis because it's their duty. And I just think, how far away can you be from understanding how a school works mm. and you are technically in charge of education? She did say she would do it herself if she could. If she so could, I that's, that's the bit, a... isn't it? If she I'd, like, I'd like to see that, actually. I think, I think should, we should set a challenge for that. Yeah. 50,000 children missing education at the moment, so... You know, I'm sure she could do that in a morning. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, it, it, I, it's I haven't ridiculous seen I didn't it's, see it's that. It's a silly I... thing to say. Yeah. And it's, it's obviously, it's been said in an interview that wasn't scripted, but it gives away a complete lack of understanding. And, you know, a soundbite sounds as though it's really good until you actually challenge it mm-hmm. and say, so a head teacher is going to go out in the car at what cost? Um, the most expensive member of staff doing pickups. Uh, it'd have to be two teachers because of safeguarding. And I'm sure the concept in her head is a child sort of waiting at the door for the head teacher taxi to arrive and skipping to the car and getting in. And the only thing that stopped them getting to school is this lack of transport, as opposed to the, you know, the real world that some of us may have, have had in, in tough areas where the parents aren't going to happily dress the child and pass them to you, that that you're going to be in a fight with a parent, you're going to have on safeguarding issues, on trying to drag a child out. You're going to, it, it's just yeah. an absolute nonsense thing to start with. And in fact, the truth of the matter is, there were teams that used to do that in local authorities that have now been cut to the bone, so don't exist anymore. But, but also, there's school, I mean... Schools are doing all this stuff anyway. Yeah, you know, it, it's it gives the impression that schools have just you know they're not they're not concerned about the fact that attendance rates in year ten and eleven are the worst in living memory. You know, I mean, everyone's shocked about it. Everyone's trying to do something about it. As you say, Stan, there's very little resource left. You know, they're, they're already doing it, but there's little resource left to the academy that it. I was working with. Have, have they employ an ex police officer? Who who does knocking mm-hmm. on doors and, and and chasing up, but it's it's ad hoc, isn't it? It's not. We want all schools having access to a system that will do that. And the other thing that really annoyed me was, you know, we we have a duty to do this. No, actually, the only person who has a duty to get a child in school on time the, is the parent. Yeah, nobody yeah. else. Yeah. Now, yes, we want them to be at school. We want them to be attending. We want them to be doing the best they can. But let's just have a look at reality rather than just 
make something up for a point on a TV interview. I, I've said this many times on this show that actually a lot of year 10s and 11s have just said, yeah, some of the lower retaining kids who are, who are disenchanted with their school experience said, what's the, what's the point? Mm. I wasn't going to do very well anyway. We've been hit by the pandemic. I don't really like it. You know, there's nothing there for me. I mean, try, they don't, they don't Keegan me knocking that I want to do. Yeah, and Gillian Keegan knocking on the door to try and get a kid like that into school. Actually, perhaps that experience in school is the worst experience that that child could face. Yeah, no, I think we should make that happen. I think we should <laughs> get a like a some momentum going so that Gillian Keegan can well, spend a day going around schools, um, trying to trying to get. Uh, I, I, I could see that as a, as a skit. I could see that on a sort of. Can you not see it show. like um, Rishi Sunak with all those policemen running alongside as well? <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd watch that. I'd watch that if that was on TV. That would be a great reality TV show. We could sponsor it. I'd sponsor. I'd I'd pay for one of those trips. I'd pay for her to drive there. She yeah. could give the money to children in need or something. I'm all that. Or give it to a, a school that needs the funding to get more sort of people to help with the attendance figures. I mean, I'd be more than willing to do that. Yeah, we could call it get them in. Get, yeah. get them in, Jill. Get them in, Jill. <laughs> Nihad, what's caught your eye this week? So obviously with being a, a, a tech company, ed tech company, I'm just obsessed with AI at the moment and mm. following all the developments really closely. I just think it has tremendous potential for education um, in, and a lot of risks. I think yes. there's the chance that it could make kind of a educational utopia or perhaps a dystopia, depending <laughs> on your uh, way of looking at it. But um, I've been involved with a lot of um, uh, kind of AI events in the last couple of weeks. So uh, Dan Fitzpatrick, who's also up in the Northeast and the AI educator, he did a few talks um, up, up in the Northeast, which are really enlightening. And right. I was on an AI panel with him um, at Newcastle University a couple of couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about, you know, how the current, the current state of AI, like right now, you can read people's minds with AI. So they've, they've genuinely got um, machines, which can be linked to an MRI scanner. And they have participants that think of a teddy bear and the machine reads the brain waves and it creates an image that looks like what the person is thinking of. And also they had participants watching like a cartoon of this dragon flying. And as the person was watching the cartoon, the AI was transcribing what the person was thinking into words. So you could see the wow. video and it say wow. dragon flying over a bridge. And, well, and how dangerous is that when you're in a meeting when actually you're having to sit through a meeting and somebody you don't really like, and you're making it look as though actually you're in full agreement, but actually somewhere else on the screen to the right-hand side is some computer telling everybody else what you are actually thinking. Yeah, or even more sinister, you know, you're thinking of more along the lines of like the thought police now in 1984. Yeah. Imagine if, you know, had this yeah. kind of technology in North Korea um, or, you know, other places. So that's where the technology is at now. But the real challenge with AI is that AI... Um, expands the speed of technology much faster yes, than the yes. current rate of, of pace. So back in 1995, there was um, an interview with Dave Let Letterman and uh, um, Bill Gates, and he was talking about how you could stream a baseball game on the internet. And they were all making fun of him, being like, have you heard of radio? Um, and, you know, he was like saying, well, it's a bit different because you can choose when to stream it and all that kind of stuff. And no one was, everyone was laughing and thinking it was a bit stupid. 
um 12 years later the iphone came about so that was the the rate pace of change now ai development moves about 10 times faster yeah. so um chat gpt4 has just come out and that's about 10 times smarter than the previous version and that rate of pace will keep developing and developing and developing and the challenge is that no one actually understands how it works things out yeah so um there's a lot of challenges and risks here, for, not just for the education sector, but for the society as a whole and how it will transform society. And my job as someone who's working in ed tech is to be responsible with this and find a way that we can develop AI that supports existing teachers um, because fighting it's not really an option. It's about mm-hmm. developing as, as many good AI tools as possible um, to reduce the risk of of some of the challenges that come down down the line. So that's what... I'm really trying to think about how we can do that and be mindful to support existing teachers. Yeah. I think one thing I noticed in keeping children safe in education, there's a, there's a kind of warning with that about what information you are putting into um, an AI app in order yeah. to download it and what schools are doing and what the children are doing. And I think, I mean, my thought was surely we should be able to have some safe AI options so that schools can log into a, a program or a machine that, that that is safe for them and the the contents of it of their details their information won't go outside of, of the school I, I just think once once you think you know if individual children in signing on to something have to put their names and the school name and everything else that that's just just too dangerous for me at the moment and I don't know if there is a safe one to use or if somebody's registering one that that schools can use without fear. Yeah, I think that side of it should be fairly safe, like the personal data, because there's lots of stringent protect- protections around data through GDPR. And also there's the children's code as well, which companies have to adhere to if they're using data in, in the kind of way that you would do for, for AI, which is a little bit more um, more detailed. So I, I would I would feel reassured about that. The real the real challenge I would say um, for AI is that there's there's challenges in terms of bias. So all mm-hmm. the answers that come from AI are built on large data sets, and obviously most of those data sets are built within our existing world, which is very biased and predisposed towards yeah. certain things. And when it presents something, it's presented as like a fact. This is what it is. So there's always the risk that it can just be wrong about about things, but people are, are following what what it's saying. Um, there's there's risks. Feel as though, I feel as though this, when I was at uh, school um, many many years ago and, and teaching, media studies and things like that were not well. In some cases, were valued, and but but actually over the years that that sort of that sort of thinking or that sort of study has been sort of derided, you know. But actually, for me. You know, things like uh, uh, English literature, English generally, history, media studies, these are critically important sort of areas to ensure that students are given some indication as to how are you going to identify that bias? How are you going to identify these wrong statements? How are you going to identify how the system is actually sort of leaning against you? And, and what do you do to actually repel it and to actually correct it? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think those are going to be, I mean, they already are critical skills to have, right? The Mm, ability to analyze and understand nuance. 
and where there's differences uh, in validity potentially from different different places and sources, um, that's probably going to become more important. And I think knowledge is going to be less of a commodity. You know, we've already seen this since Google. It's not as important to know stuff anymore because you can just find stuff out really quickly on Google. But the way AI changes this is it not just knows things, it implements it. So, you know, in the past, if you wanted to like, uh, like say I've got something wrong with me, I might Google it and think, oh my God, I've got cancer, I'm going to die or something because I've I've got like yeah. a, a slight cut on my skin because obviously Google always shows you like the worst possible outcomes for, <laughs> for anything that you have. And then you go to a doctor and they're like, oh, you're fine. Um, and that's that's the current process. Except but... my doctor goes on to Google. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Which is they really frightening. Well. <laughs> yeah, but they do that too. But um, the thing with AI is AI could realistically do those kinds of jobs so mm. you know there's a 10% failure rate with prescriptions with gps you know ai is go- always going to be way more knowledgeable than human yeah. beings it's like the first time a machine beat kasparov at chess back in the 90s that was within a set data set now ai has the capability to have that same data set but for like medical knowledge or law or accountancy so a lot of these jobs are now going to be transformed and changed and that'll create a lot of questions about the telos or the purpose of education. Why are we educating kids? Is it to get an examination or is it actually to build their social fiber, yes. their yes. Mor- morality, their ability to critically think? And it, in that sense, it could actually become a bit of a utopia where, I, I, where I, a lot of the legwork of knowledge acquisitions, more AI driven and actually teachers are doing more kind of um, project-based learning or developmental activities, to develop the soul and the human um, which is something that AI can't compete with. Stan, Stan, I mean, I just I had to sit through um, Nick Gibb at the Select Committee yesterday. I mean, what you're saying is completely the opposite tack of what Nick Gibb believes. I mean, he, he his 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 understanding is that you know, you have to have the knowledge in order to be able to be sort of critical. You know, so you, you have to have that sort of basis in order to actually sort of see through or to, to gather the nuance, you know, to actually get yeah. an understanding of it. And in some respects, I, I get that. But actually what you're, I think you're, you're much more aligning yourself to where I feel and a lot of people feel it's going. But it's as if the system at the moment doesn't allow you to sort of push on down that road. You know, we're still stuck in sort of quite a sort of Victorian type of sort of, position you know and and i think there's a real risk here that we, we the, the the children are going to be disadvantaged because if other countries are taking this agenda in the way you've described it forward they will get a march on us and it will be very very challenging for us to catch that up we need to be at the forefront of this not not behind everybody else which is where i feel we are at the moment yeah yeah no it's it's a it's a real challenge isn't it there's always this debate about what's education about is it skills or learning um, or qualifications and the reality is the current system is already not that fit for purpose you know most employees don't really care about whether or not a kid has got GCSE C Mm. in English and maths what they care about is can that person do the job yeah and there's been more degradation of that whole university hierarchy over time by everyone including government who've been trying to push people away from university into apprenticeships Mm. and so on and so forth um so there's going to be some a big shake-up i I expect in the next kind of five to ten years kind of pre-run of this can't you with twitter if you look at twitter you've almost now got diverging 
groups completely that that un, under claim to understand, think, and react very differently. Often, some with great anger to everything, others with with no anger. But it, it's a definite split, and I know since since Twitter has had a new owner, I'm seeing far more of the angry people than I, I was beforehand. You need to stop following me then, Stan. <laughs> <laughs> and me. It, just, it puzzles me when people get really angry about things that have no impact on their lives whatsoever. Mm. And yet, you know, they've knocked a statue down in Bristol. That's blah, blah, blah. Did you yeah, know yeah. that statue was there? No. Have you ever heard of that statue? <laughs> no. So it's actually been put up again. Oh, has it? No, it hasn't. But it wouldn't affect you either way. So uh, why uh, are you angry about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I was thinking of Hugh Edwards then when you were talking like that as well. Yeah. You know, what what you know, I mean, what what's been said and what's been reported on that, and the anger that some people feel about it, and the the sympathy that some people feel about it. You know, I mean, this is a very sort of um, I don't know if the people have been made to feel angry about it as well. Yeah, you know, they've been driven to the anger. You know. Um, but well, I noticed in some uh, journalists writing yesterday about it, who who kept using the word "young" in in with regard to the people involved. Now, normally, when you're in your twenties, you're not regarded as a young person. But then, sort of tried to twist the thing around by saying, "But if this happened to a girl," but actually, the phrase was a schoolgirl. Mm. So why why are you comparing it with a school girl? Because that's a completely different yeah, thing yeah, altogether. Yeah. But by just adding that in, you've put a suggestion in people's minds that something that didn't go on has gone on. Yeah, I, I think I think one, and of this the... is why I don't buy the Sun. Um, yeah. And I think Liverpool <laughs> is very wise to do the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's probably the only time when at Liverpool or Manchester quite often, you know, and you get the free papers. Mm. If somebody's gone before you from Liverpool, they're all in the bin at the side. Yeah, <laughs> pick good. them up and and dump them throw them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, uh, what's caught my eye? There's quite a lot of things actually. I was thinking about Delhi Alley. Thought that okay, was quite yeah. interesting. A very interesting story that one. Yeah. I, I, actually, I was going to talk about the pace alone, but I'm looking at your face there. I'm thinking I'm going to talk about Deli Ali. I I think for me, I just had no idea how complex his upbringing was. Yeah, and actually, uh, and it supports the sort of point you're making, Stan. You know, um, the the sort of pressure that he has been under, and and anybody that's followed his career will see this sort of dramatic rise, sort of you know, an amazingly talented and skillful player. Then suddenly, for some unknown reason, because we don't know the story. Sort of an apparent decline, up you know, unwilling to train, dropping out of you know one of these sort of Premiership teams, being sort of loaned off to I think to a Turkish club or whatever, you know, and behind the scenes, all of this stuff going on, you know, and and you know, from the beginnings to where he was, and you know the sort of challenging and awful upbringing, uh, some of the experiences he's spoken about. You know, to to actually achieve what he did achieve, phenomenal. You know, but behind that, again, with this Hugh Edwards story, in a way, you know, this you just don't know what's going on, and it's great to be honest. Yeah, you know, I thought Gary 
Gary Neville's response to it. I thought also that was there was a sensitivity to it and a, and a willingness for this person to be very open about how he was feeling. And there's three men here, you know. I I just really I really welcomed that sort of honesty and the bite of it, and feeling as though it's okay to talk about these sorts of things, folks. You know, that's fine. So I think for me, Danny Ali's interview was you know, uplifting and good for m- boys, men. To, to hear it and to see it and to be done in such a sensitive way. I haven't watched it yet. I'm, I'm, I want to watch it, but I want to watch it at the right time and when yeah, I'm in, yeah. in the right uh, mode for that. I think Gary Neville's response was very honest and open, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's worth watching. If anyone hasn't watched it, you know, just just search for it because it's, uh, it, it's, it, it, there's, no, there's no pleasure in watching it. It's a really sad story, but actually there is hope because he has shared it in the way he has, you know, that it, it may help others. Um, yeah. There's a Newcastle. Well, Newcastle, we were talking about Newcastle, weren't we, before? We were, yeah. Big season coming up. Have you, you Your shirt's arriving shortly. <laughs> yeah, well, I bought a shirt and then I had to uh, send it back because it was too small for me. <laughs> get a bigger one. That happened over COVID. A lot of yeah, like, um, <laughs> um, over. I, these football players are just so skinny. You know that's, that's, that's my excuse. But um, yeah, so I've got another one coming now, which is a, a bit of a bigger size. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I've always been more into rugby than into football. But, oh, right. Um, because I grew up in Wales, but I always thought if I was going to support a team. It was it'd be Newcastle because I've lived up in the northeast around Newcastle for a, a long time, and obviously it's a big footballing city. And um, I've just really gotten into it this season because I've watched some of the games, and they're just so fun to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a really um, aggressive kind of style of play. Yeah. Um, they dictate the game a lot more, and it's, they're just interesting to watch. Um, and yeah, I've really really gotten into it. Um, so, so yeah, looking forward to the next season and seeing what happens with Tonali in the squad and some of the other players that are coming through. Yeah, brilliant. Um, well, I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much. And I've learned an awful lot as well, which I think we said last week. It's amazing how we're privileged to have guests like yourself on and we learn so much because um, it, it, it makes us realise how little we know. Um, so uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. And uh, for those watching and listening, we have one more edition before the summer break. Um, it's a rather unusual one next week um, because my my son is getting married at the end of August, and I've decided that we're going to going to invite his best friend on next week. And the story behind it, though, is that he he went through an apprenticeship route when he left school, and so I'm quite interested. He's been very successful in developing a business, so. It's just that journey, you know, that I'm very interested to sort of see how he's done it. So, uh, yeah, so uh, Mr. Murphy is on uh, next week. So thanks for thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And uh, hopefully we'll see you all next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.